0: Our scripture reading this morning is uh, Ephesians 5, verses 21 through 33. And this is bringing us to the end of this Who Is He series, uh, following that book by John Ortberg. This is God's holy and infallible word. Wives, submit to one another out of reverence. Oh yeah, 21. This is actually the first verse. It's not up there. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then verse 22, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself. As a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. That is God's word for us this morning. We talked about so much uh, on Sunday mornings these last several months. We talked about how Jesus introduced a radical new approach toward women, a radical new approach toward the weak and vulnerable in society. We've talked about the compelling evidence around us of Christ's supremacy based on how his coming has changed our world. We've talked about taking off the mask of hypocrisy, We've talked about breaking free of our silos that we tend to. Last week, we talked about the church, and now this week, the focus is on the home and, in particular, marriage. Marriage is not the oldest institution in the history of the world. We talked about that last week. That's the church. But it's certainly older than pretty much any other institution you could think of. Something that Ortberg says early on in his chapter on marriage is very intriguing. He talks about the biblical idea of marriage being the new kid on the block, historically speaking. For thousands of years, marriage did not look like what Jesus introduced What we call the traditional view of marriage, the biblical view, is a tremendous change from what was happening prior to that, tremendous change from how marriage looked in in Jesus' day in the Roman Empire. I'll give you just one little proof of that. Um, Among the biblical qualifications for elders, uh, you may know, we're told that an elder should be the husband of just one wife. And I was really pleased this year that council was able to give you all elder nominees, all men with only one wife. We did well. But why in the world does the Bible say that? Is it saying you have to be married to be an elder or serve in office? No, that's not it. The reality is that in that culture, polygamy was still practiced. There were husbands with more than one wife. And now Jesus was introducing change. There were apparently people in the early church who were being called out of that pagan culture who still had more than one wife. But now Paul is calling the elders to a higher standard that over time would become the standard for believers and for society. One wife. We're going to see this morning that Jesus brought newness and change to that institution of marriage whether we're comparing and talking about how marriage looked throughout most of the history of the world or or if we're thinking about the changing views of marriage in our culture today jesus shows the way that that we just need to continually be called back to we we got to be called back to jesus way so that our marriages may thrive For our own sakes, for the sake of our kids and our churches, and for the benefit of all of society. Society's going off the rails thinking it has an enlightened view of marriage. Changing the definition as if that were possible. Saying marriage is not one man, one woman. There's nothing new under the sun when it comes down to it. People have always wanted to go their own way. And Jesus saves us from ourselves and our misguided ideas and views of what we're convinced is right. What does his word say about marriage? We're just going to talk about a few things this morning. First of all, we see that in Jesus, marriage has a new foundation. A new foundation. There's a guy that we call Pseudo-Demosthenes who described a pretty clear picture of marriage in Jesus' day. In the Roman Empire, we have mistresses for our enjoyment, concubines to serve our needs, and wives to bear legitimate children. Marriage was about procreation and appetite. It was basically like a contract, a convenient social institution that served the economy, it served the state, but the Bible links marriage to creation which means it's more foundational than any of those things. And that foundation of marriage is a promise. It's a vow. It's a covenant. And that's very different from a contract. A contract is, I'm going to do these things if you do these things. And we have contracts all around us, our home and car payments, cell phone contracts, but marriage vows are different. You hear sometimes people say, you know, I don't need a piece of paper. And that's true. And it never was about the paper for Jesus. They didn't have paper in Jesus' day. No, what it is about, what the true foundation is, the promise. As long as we both shall live. So, in a world of change, in a world of a lot of instability, there is this certainty that can be relied on. For better or for worse, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, we say to the other one that whether we're young like we are now or old, whatever, this is a certainty that you can rely on. This is my solemn vow to you. I will stay with you. It's so special. It's a moving, wonderful, almost scary part of the marriage ceremony because it's a lifetime promise. This is bigger than attraction, It's bigger than convenience or, or financial stability. This is covenant language. It's an echo of what God does when he makes his vow of an ending love for his people. It's unconditional love, no matter what it's saying. You know, I, I see that little bit of crazy in you. I love you anyway I accept you have you ever thought about how on the the most romantic day of your life you actually say for better or worse on this greatest most romantic day you're saying this could go bad one of us could get cancer God could take one of us home we could lose all our money but you're saying, I'm not going anywhere. This is a covenant promise, and that foundation for marriage makes all the difference in how you approach it. Matt Chandler, he's a pastor down in Texas. I may have mentioned him once before. Um, About five years ago, he had a seizure in his home on Thanksgiving morning in front of his wife and kids, and he was diagnosed with the exact type of brain tumor that I was diagnosed with three and a half years ago and had removed. Well, so this hits a little close to home. Um, he, He talks about how after his seizure and the surgery and the 18 months of chemotherapy he had, I think even more intensive chemo than I had, he just talks about how he lost any attraction that he had he lost his hard-working abilities and his sort of funny nature. There was just so much he couldn't do for a while. He was beat down. He was a shell of the man he was, but his wife was there. She didn't say, I'm still beautiful and relatively young. I don't need this. I can do better. This is hard. Let's find another way. I don't want to waste my time in this. I want to enjoy my life." No, she stayed with him. And there's a beauty to that kind of commitment. And there's a beauty to the foundation of marriage being a promise modeled after God's own unconditional love. It's not always easy, but we follow through on that promise. We seek God's help so we can, because we can't do it on our own. Secondly, in Jesus, marriage has a new goal. Matthew 19, Jesus says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife. The two will become flesh, one flesh, so they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. What is the ultimate goal of marriage? Is it to have a, a buddy of the opposite gender? To have someone who can satisfy certain needs that human beings are born with, to have children. None of those are the main goal. And the goal isn't sort of just avoid divorce, avoid adultery. The goal is to pursue spiritual unity together. In the ancient world, loyalty to your parents remained forever the greatest loyalty in life. But with Jesus It's different. Now, when you become married, your greatest loyalty in human relationships is to your spouse. And there's something special about that great act of marriage that God calls us to keep in marriage and that helps us create that spiritual unity. That's why to have physical intimacy with someone outside of the marriage relationship is such a serious matter. It's never something that is only physical. It's spiritual. Eve said, I don't know if you ever caught this, kind of struck me. When she had her first child, she says this, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Kind of wonder if Adam's ego was a little bruised by that statement. Like, hey, I had something to do with this too, you know. But the mention of God, I think, is deliberate. God is in this. This is spiritual. This is sacred. The world would have us believe that a casual sexual relationship, friends with benefits, is something that's, that you can have. You can't. It's impossible. It's a lie. So this was a new understanding of physical closeness and what it's all about. Reverend Tim Keller summarizes the difference between the old view and what Jesus brought. I thought this was pretty helpful. The ancients were stingy with their money, but generous with their bodies. The Christians were stingy with their bodies, but generous with their money. And it's because they were coming to understand this spiritual, this special unity in the husband and wife relationship. The word in the Bible for that sacred act intended only for marriage is to know. To know. So it's about personal and experiential knowing. And in that pursuit of spiritual unity in the marriage relationship, that physical part of the relationship is something beautiful, it's something to be celebrated. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. The Bible teaches the goodness of the human body and the freedom and the joy of intimacy between husband and wife. Today, churches are pretty much always a preferred wedding site, even for totally irreligious people. And and I think that shows us that there is this underlying sense of there being something deeply spiritual about marriage. Physical, intellectual, spiritual, unity is the beautiful goal, of biblical goal of marriage. Each one, not losing their individuality, but growing as individuals together toward each other toward a closer walk with God. Third, in Jesus, marriage has a winning blueprint. And that blueprint is in our verses. It's not overly complex, and yet we seem to sometimes have trouble with it. And we try different blueprints to our peril. There's direction for the wife and then for the husband on how to make marriage successful. And in summary, it's this, wives, submit to your husbands, verse 22 and verse 33, a wife must respect her husband, and then husbands, love your wives, verse 25, 28, and 33. This isn't my idea, this isn't my winning formula, this isn't something that was developed in the 1950s or in the 1750s, this is God's holy and infallible word for us and direction for living. The idea of husbands loving their wives was radical. I'm sure that there was love in some of the relationships among people in the ancient world, but that certainly wasn't the calling of the husband. It was mostly about having children, uh, providing, and love certainly wasn't necessary for those other relationships that men had with concubines and mistresses and whatever. We tend to focus on that submission of the wives and that the husband is the head of the wife. We should take that seriously. But the husband's call to love is no less radical. It's profound. It's not how it used to be. One thing that has always struck me in these verses in Matthew 5 is that the wife's call is three verses long and the husband's call is nine verses long. And it makes me think God must think husbands are particularly dull. No comments from the women in the sanctuary. We, we know, trust me, that we need a little extra help. Right, guys? So we don't have to rub it in today. But a lot is expected of the husband here. Nine verses worth, verses three. And that, that love command helps us define the meaning of the husband being the head of the wife. In history, since the Bible, sometimes men have taken head to mean dictator or boss. That's very wrong. We're called to love and be the head as Christ is the head of the church. And Jesus is always loving, gentle, humble, the chief servant, and he also leads the church. And I believe the Bible calls the husband to provide spiritual leadership in the home. I believe this is God's blueprint. Husbands were called to give loving spiritual leadership in the home. Lead the way. In keeping those vows, lead the way in seeking that spiritual unity and growth. Men and women, if we don't follow the biblical blueprint, how would we dare expect success in our homes or in our marriages? So I encourage you to know these verses, read them, study them, join or start a small group with other couples that studies a biblically based book that seeks out God's blueprint and gives practical advice for how this should look in our marriages. You know, even in in dating, I believe the man has responsibility in taking the lead, younger men. Song of Songs indicates the man's responsible to protect the woman's purity in dating. He doesn't want to awaken love too soon, he writes, and so he vows to only see her in public because he doesn't trust himself. That's spiritual leadership, men. And I'll say this too about it. My experience tells me that when a man is submitting to the Lord's blueprint for him in the marriage relationship, a woman will gladly follow and gladly respect. So guys, you set the pace. You lead in your marriage relationship, in, in your home, in in. that spiritual unity and spiritual dimension of your life and worship attendance and generous giving and family devotions and prayer and serving where there are needs in the church, the men are called to take the lead. Two Two more points. In Jesus, fourthly, marriage does not nullify the high calling of singleness, if that makes sense. You can see it too. Not all people are called to be married. It's not and it's not that being married is somehow a higher or better calling than being single. In fact, you know, the Apostle Paul seems to indicate the opposite almost that to be single is a higher calling. You know, he talks about being married requiring a lot of time and effort and energy. And all of that is a great blessing to the married couple, of course. But a single person potentially could spend that extra time that married people spend on the marriage relationship and have more time and energy and resources to give to God's kingdom. That view, this Christian view of singleness and its high calling, it didn't always used to be that way. Being single in the ancient world, was considered a lesser thing, most definitely. Somehow you weren't a full person if you were single. But Jesus changed that. You think of that, this man and and truly God, Jesus, who had so much to tell us about God's way for marriage, he was single. If he was single, how could being single be a lesser calling? It may even be better, and if if that is God's call for you, it certainly is a better calling for you. And, and so rather than get stuck on the marriage thing, trust that God's plan for your life will come about. And in the meantime, get into serving the Lord, making disciples, ask God to direct you how best to use your life for His glory right now, whatever He has for you. Finally, one other thought recognize that in Jesus there is grace. For all of us. Historically, a lot of people would say that there's been something of a double standard in the church. The church has always understood, based on Scripture, that what you might call uh, sins of the spirit, sins of the heart, are more serious and more dangerous than sins of the flesh. I'm just using those terms. I think you understood sins of the heart versus sins of the flesh. But there has been very little church discipline over the centuries for sins of the spirit, like maybe greed or unforgiveness or bitterness, and a much greater emphasis and focus on what the church has called sins of the flesh. And result of all that has been that we can feel that if we have failings in this area, Maybe it's a failed marriage. Maybe it's infidelity in marriage or outside of marriage that then we're done for. We are broken and ruined beyond repair. Well, I can't help thinking about marriage to come back to the man that the Bible calls a man after God's own heart. The guy the Bible calls a man after God's own heart. That was David, who slept with his friend's wife and then had the guy killed. Despite that, despite that, he was a man after God's own heart because the finished work of Jesus covered all his sins. You think, too, of that chapter, we did that Heroes of Faith uh, series last fall. If you look, we didn't cover everybody in Hebrews 11, but you notice in that list in Hebrews 11, of all the names, and there are many, Only Rahab's occupation is mentioned. Prostitute. Why doesn't it say David the king or Samuel the priest or Gideon the judge? Why Rahab's occupation? The answer, I believe, is grace. It's to show us the great grace of our God for sinners. And we're all that. We're all sinners. We've messed up. We've messed up in small ways and big ways in our marriages. We've broken the seventh commandment in marriage, outside of marriage, single people, married people. But that doesn't mean there's no hope. There's full, there's complete forgiveness in God. And though sins in this area can have tremendously great ramifications and affect people very badly, there can be healing in Jesus. Things can Turn around. Though your skin, sin is as scarlet, you shall be white as snow in Jesus. You can experience his loving grace. All you need to do is turn to him with empty and open hands in your failure, in your need, in your sin, in your hurt. He accepts you, accepts me. He loves you, he loves me. Yeah. Even you with those thoughts you have sometimes. Yeah, you, even though you've got pulled into those websites, guys, that you know are harmful. He loves you men, though you failed to lead. He loves you wives, despite your shortcomings, too. God's grace covers all our sins. My prayer is this morning that we'd hear what god's word tells us about marriage let's come back to that foundation of marriage the promise you made let's get on track with the goal of marriage this spiritual unity in a world where gender roles are becoming confused and flattened let's get back again to what the bible says about the role of the husband and the role of the wife and embrace the high calling of singleness and seeing it God's way of glorifying himself through your life, if that's where you are today. And especially embrace God's grace in this area of life where we all need so much of it. And we may have it because of the saving work of Jesus.